Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship now as we open up God's Word. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Genesis 14 today, but for the scripture reading, we're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's word. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every matter under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to tear up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would be glorified in our time together, that you would be blessed by the reading of your holy and inspired word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, that is the title for both our message this morning, as well as the two main headings of your outline, a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time for both. There was a time for war and a time for peace in Solomon's day, as we just read. There was a time for both war and peace in Abram's day, as we're about to read. And there is a time for war and a time for peace in our day. Yes, even for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we'll be considering in our time together this morning in Genesis chapter 14. Whereas uh, we meet up again with Abram, who, if you can remember during our time together last week, deferred to his nephew Lot as to which portion of land they would reside in after seeing their herdsmen battling over resources. You'll remember Abram was a very rich man, yet having his gaze set upon things above, on things of eternal worth, on things of eternal value, said to his nephew Lot, another very rich man, yet one who had his gaze firmly fixed upon the delights of this temporal and fleeting life, please, Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? This peacemaker was doing all that he could to live peaceably with all men. He was doing all he could to avoid conflict, to avoid strife, to avoid battling with those around him, especially those of his kin, as he said. Please, Lot, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Whatever you want, man. Whichever way you want to go, I will go the other way. Again, giving us a wonderful example of not only peacemaking, but also what it means to 
truly have a long-term perspective. As Abram not only trusted that God would, in fact, be faithful to his promise to ultimately give him all the land of Canaan, but beyond that, is now seeking to live out the rest of his days in a way that is honoring and pleasing to Yahweh, even if it costs him some temporal blessings and comfort. He had a long-term perspective. In fact, an eternal perspective, as Hebrews tells us. Abram was not content with merely dwelling in the promised land during his earthly life, but was, in fact, looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He aspired to a better country, that is, a heavenly country. Abram now had new motivations, no more self-glorification, self-gratification, or self-exaltation, but now a true desire to live for the sovereign Lord who called him out of both the hopelessness of pagan idol worship and this dark and depraved world system. And we'll see this theme continue even this morning. I will warn you, though, this 14th chapter is a sobering chapter, and one we'll only get partway through this morning. It's a sobering text that reveals for us the realities of living in a fallen, evil world surrounded and even governed by fallen, evil men and women. This text is both hard to swallow and, frankly, it's hard to read, which is why we started with Ecclesiastes this morning. I'm only going to read these first 12 verses once with brief comments throughout. You will have to follow along in your Bibles this morning or or you'll be lost. Please open up to Genesis 14. Go to Genesis 14. But you have to have a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there are some under the seat in front of you. It's page 16. 16. Look with me at verse 1, point 1 in your outline. And it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shem-Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Okay, so here we have nine kings listed, four from the east, northeast, Mesopotamia, upwards of Babylon, and five from the west, in or around the promised land right near the Dead Sea. Four eastern kings, five western kings were now at war. This is the first war mentioned in the Bible, the first war in a long string of wars, not only throughout biblical history, but also throughout human history, even up to and including today's wars. War is who we are. War is what we do. It's what we, depraved, wicked men and women, have always done. Sometimes we have war for just reasons, and sometimes we have war for unjust reasons. Let's not get ahead of ourselves now. Back to these kings. You'll notice Moses writes in verse 3 and 4 that the five kings to the west formed an alliance. Okay? On what basis? All these kings came as allies to the Valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea, or again, just below the Dead Sea. And here's why. For 12 years they had served Ketelaramor, uh, but the 13th year they rebelled. For 12 years, these eastern kings, and subsequently the people they ruled over, served one of the 
uh, uh, northern kings, Kedor Laomer. In other words, they paid tribute to him. They gave a cut of their labor to him. For whatever reason, we're not told, they offered themselves as servants to this king and his country. But finally, after 13 years, they said, you know what? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Who does this guy think he is? We're done being his lackeys here. There are five of us here. We got some armies. Let's all band together and go to war with this guy. Then we'll show him who's boss. Well, that sounds like a decent plan, but remember, Keterle Amor had some allies of his own. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Moses writes, Keterle Amor and the three kings that were with him, these three eastern kings, the Mesopotamian kings, came and struck the Rephian in Ashtaroth Kerneum and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shavakiriathiam and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. So these kings, they just go on a tear. They're literally making a war path. They're decimating these people groups who had any affiliation at all with the Western Confederation. And they weren't done there. Verse 7 says, Then they turned back and they came up to El Mish, excuse me, and Mishfat, that is Kadesh. And they struck all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. They wanted to take this entire region. They wanted to, to have all that land that stood between their territories in the north, uh, modern day Syria and Iraq, all the way down to Egypt. That would have made a great trade route, right? In fact, it did make a great trade route. It's called the King's Highway. Abram was familiar with this region, as was the author of this book, Moses. He referenced it in Numbers, in Numbers 20, actually, just as after he strikes the rock in anger. You remember that? Where he, he meets this Edomite and pleads with him, and he says, please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the King's Highway. We will not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Well, that's this area that we're talking about here. And these four eastern kings are, are running through it, just cleaning house, okay? All the way up and down this region, from north to south, back to the north again, where finally in verse 8 we read, And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. They arranged themselves for battle against them in the, king, in the valley of Siddim, against Cador Leomor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Setting it up for a big battle here. But let's just say it wasn't quite the raging battle one might have expected. Verse 10. Now, the valley of Siddim, which commentators think, again, was due south of the Dead Sea, was full of tar pits. This is the same word used back in chapter 11 at the construction of the Tower of Babel. Tar, asphalt, a bitumen. Moses says, the kings, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them. This could be translated, they threw themselves into them for cover. But those who remained behind fled to the hill country. So obviously this wasn't much of a war here. The uprising was quelled. The rebellion was dominated, just like the people groups before them. They were subjugated for 12 years, liberated in the 13th year, and utterly decimated in the 14th year. That's the history of these kings. In fact, Moses says, Keterle Amor didn't just crush the rebellious kings, but 
He went back into the cities, verse 11, and he plundered everything in sight. Moses says, then they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food supply. Then they departed. And there you go, that's it. That's the history of the five kings versus the four kings. That was the first war, but not the last. Not even the last in the Bible or the, or the Old Testament or Genesis for that matter. In fact, we don't even get out of this chapter without reading of even more blood being shed. But at whose hands this blood was shed may come as a surprise to you. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. Now, he was living in Sodom. So, we've seen the subjugation and domination. Now, point two, we see the provocation and retaliation. Okay? As verse 13 says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. First time we see that word Hebrew, by the way. Showing for us how Abram was already considered independent from the heathen peoples, from the nations of the region. This name derived from Eber. You remember a few chapters ago, uh, we went through the lineage. He was of the godly line of Shem. Moses says a fugitive, someone who escaped that battle, came and told Abram the Hebrew. Notice, this is very important. Prior to this report, Abram wasn't tangled up in that war in the Valley of Siddim. He wasn't mentioned anywhere in the first 12 verses. These kings fought over land and goods and tributes and food and trade routes. We didn't hear anything from Abram concerning the relationship between these warring countries. He's minding his own business. He's got flocks and, and herds and servants. He has a wife. He's not involved in this war of kings. It's not his business. Until a fugitive comes and says, Listen, Abram, they got your nephew in the plunder. Then everything changes. You can almost picture this scene in your mind here, this fugitive coming in from the battlefield. Maybe Abram's out in the field working on a fence or something. The fugitive said, yeah, they got the uh, Amorites and the Amalekites even. And Abram's, hmm, really? The fugitive, yeah, then they fought against Bera and Beersha in the valley. Oh, yeah? How'd that go? Well, they got smoked, of course. You know Cheddarly Amor. He's a tyrant. But, um, Abram? Yeah? They got your nephew. They got Lot. I almost picture that next nail falling from the grip of his teeth, his hammer dropping to the ground. Moses describes how Abram, without missing a beat, springs into action. He says in verse 13, Now, he was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were in a covenant with Abraham. So Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive. He led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 in number, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Instantly, he takes action. Instantly, he heads out for a fight. Instantly, he gathers some friends, even unbelieving friends, friends who he had an agreement with. We saw back in chapter 12. Aner, Mamre, Eskel. All right, it's time to go, boys. It's time to go. Time to make true on your oath to me. And he would have done the same for them, by the way. 
He would have done the same. He swore an oath. Moses says, as soon as Abram heard his relative was taken captured, he gathered the troops, 318 of his own men from his own household, men whom he had trained, by the way. Trained men, ready for battle. And he went up north as far as Dan, which of course Dan wasn't Dan in Abram's time, but remember Moses is writing this to the Israelites and he knows right where Dan is. It's way north. Abram took these 318 men along with the brothers, and I'm assuming they're trained men, and he set out to get his nephew. See, the biggest mistake these Mesopotamian kings made wasn't their unsatiated lust for power. It wasn't their even their greed and arrogance which caused them to ravage city after city after city on account of not getting their annual tribute. The biggest mistake they made was they provoked the wrong guy to action. They messed with the wrong guy's family. A guy who was just seemingly minding his own business. And the results were swift and the results were severe. Verse 15. As like a military general, Abram divided his men against them by night, he and his servants, and struck them, smote them. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, he slaughtered them. He slaughtered them. Abram slaughtered these kings and their armies and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Moses says he brought back all the possessions He also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. A few sermons ago I said, you know, Abram is no hero. He's no hero. He's just another wicked sinner saved by sovereign grace and the mere good pleasure of God. But after this text, I might have to eat my hat. This guy was a hero in some sense of the word. He was a Gideon-like hero. Gideon who took his 300 warriors to go, over, uh, uh, to go against over 135,000 men. Or David taking 400 men and chasing the Amalekites who had taken his two wives. Abram was a hero. As we'll soon see, in the strength of the Lord. But more admirable than his preparedness and more impressive than his ability was that he was a man of integrity. He was a man of truth. He was a man of righteousness. He was a man of principle. And he knew when to say enough is enough. Again, he wasn't out looking to pick a fight here or be a provocateur. He wasn't sticking his nose in the events of these pagan kings. However, when it came to his doorstep, when it came to his family, his people, his tribe, he was ready and willing to fight. He was a just man who fought in a just battle against unjust kings, and he slaughtered them in the process. He brought back everything. He brought back back Lot. He brought back the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the women that these kings had taken to rape as slaves. He, He brought back all their food. He brought back all their stuff. And, as we'll read... He did it all in the strength of and according to the sovereign will of Yahweh who gave his enemies into his hand. I I think the application is crystal clear. And some may disagree with me, and that's okay. Some may even get very perturbed at what I'm about to say. You might say, that's it. That's the last straw I'm out of here. And that's okay too. 
But God's people are not called to be pacifistic cowards. On the contrary, we, of all people, ought to be prepared and ready to engage in battle should, as we see in the case of Abram and Gideon and David and many others, including Christ himself, by the way, should the fight come to us, we ought to be prepared. We ought to be ready to defend the defenseless to stand up for the oppressed and even, as we heard this morning, be willing to preserve and protect the sanctity of life from the attacks of those who wantonly destroy life. We of all people ought to be willing to call out and even stand against the evils which plague this corrupted and cursed earth. Yes, even in our place and time. I should say especially in our place and time. And especially when such evils come to our doorstep, especially when it impacts those in in our families, even those in our churches. Now, I don't believe it's honoring to the Lord to turn the cheek in every contentious situation we're faced with. Some people say that. We ought to turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, sure. In matters of personal offense, maybe, slander, the honor of Christ, Uh, Such a response is certainly called for when it comes to our being personally persecuted for righteousness' sake, in other words, for Christ's namesake, for our faith. Yeah, then we turn the other cheek. Renounce salvation by grace alone and your views on the sacraments and the papacy or you and your families will burn at the stake, they told the reformers. I will not, nor will they. But we're not going to fight you over our faith. Renounce this Christ or be fed to the lions, the Romans said. I will not. Go ahead and take me to the arena. I will will not fight you in this. Renounce your faith in this Jewish Messiah or we will cut your heads off, screamed the jihadists. We'll, We'll slice you in two, starting from the bottom up. We'll dip your body in wax and set you on fire to illuminate our gardens. We'll cloak you in animal hides and send our dogs after you. We will kill your children before your very eyes unless you blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not blaspheme his name. You can bound us, you can beat us, you can torture us, you can kill us. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Just know, we will never forsake our king. In fact, don't be surprised if we even rejoice at the honor of being counted worthy to suffer for his name. Plus, you'll be doing us a favor. As the very seconds our hearts stop, we will be with him in glory forever. So you'd be doing us a favor anyway. Go ahead. We will gladly die for our faith. We will not fight to preserve our lives when it comes to being our persecuted for righteousness sake we we are called to turn the other cheek in such circumstances right however in the meantime we will not stand idly by or i should say we should not stand idly by as we see those closest to us Our wives, our children, and either our families or our churches, we will not stand idly by as the most vulnerable among us are being threatened, oppressed, or brutalized for any other reason, including, very prevalent in our time, they're being used as mere objects to satisfy the perverted lusts of those who are seeking to exert some some form of political or social dominance over us. 
You know, I see this example of Abram as a clear demonstration of how a godly man or woman is to respond when directly confronted, confronted with the actions of some in this corrupted world system. I don't believe that Christians are called to be pushovers or spineless jellyfish. We aren't called to be cowards. I don't believe we're called to be pacifists. I know for certain that we aren't called to pretend that these things aren't happening so that we can continue on this in the satanic lie that is the American dream. We aren't called to live in convenient ignorance or cowardly inaction. Example, if you see some kid getting abused, whether physically or sexually by adults or by other kids, what do you do? You stop it. You rescue them, then you call the cops. You see some old man or woman getting brutalized by some thugs on a bus. What do you do, Christian? Do you pull out your phone and start recording like all these other idiots out there? No, you stop it by any means necessary. Then you call the cops. How about when someone comes into your house to rape your wife or take your children? What do you do in that situation? Do you depend on the government to come save you? Maybe you'll cry out, hold on a second, honey, I'm calling the police. They'll be here in a few minutes. Be sure to turn the other cheek, kids. No. You take action. You eliminate the threat. You fight to protect your family. You even kill if you have to. And again, some folks may not like this. In fact, I'm sure some folks won't like this, but I see scriptural justification for just retaliation and a just war, even. But again, I would like to reemphasize, because this is very important, from a defensive position, in a reactive manner, like Abram here, not in a manner that is antagonistic or reckless or sadistic, that's sinful. Like Abram, the children of God don't long for conflict. We don't long for strife or war uh, or fighting. However, we should be ready if that war should come. We should be ready. And frankly, the elders agree with me. How do I know this? Well, we talked about it last week. But I want you to know that uh, we have some trained, trained men in our midst this morning. You know, this would be the last church you'd want to walk into to cause trouble or try to shoot up. Uh, the elders are well aware of and give our blessing to a group of men among, among us to eliminate any potential threat that may seek to do harm to this body. It's our responsibility as shepherds to protect this flock, and we won't apologize for putting men in place to help us do just that. If some nut job happens to come in here with a knife or a gun, I have confidence that they will be eliminated quickly. We, we have to protect Christ's flock. And again, for this, we do not apologize. It's the same thing here. Abram had to do what Abram had to do to rescue his nephew. Again, very important. He didn't go out looking for a fight. He wasn't picking a fight. 
He wasn't yearning for a fight. He avoided getting tangled up in their fight. But when that fight came to him, he was both ready and willing to engage. And I think this is a question that every person in here needs to ask themselves. Certainly every man. Every husband and father, to be sure. Are you ready to fight? Are you ready to engage in battle should it come to your doorstep? Because you know what? It's getting close. It's getting close. And powerful people are actively working to take away your rights and ability to defend yourself when it arrives. They don't want you to be able to defend yourself even. Not only this, but their provocation efforts are ramping up considerably to where it's not just profiteering war hawks in Washington sending off our children to fight their endless and unjust wars, but now they're actually coming after and targeting our children through various means, including public education, entertainment, social media propaganda, including both implementing and rejecting policy that has a direct impact on the most vulnerable among us, our children. One example. I read an article this past week with the headline, Colorado House Committee Kills Bill to Increase Punishment in Child Sex Crimes. That's real. Let me read you a section. And this is public domain here. It's all right online, names and all. Quote, a Democratic-controlled House committee killed legislation that supporters said would put more teeth into Colorado law following the hours of testimony in which victims who were bought and sold as children for the purpose of sexual exploitation sought to persuade lawmakers to advance the measure. House Bill 1092 would have mandated minimum sentences for those who buy children for sexual exploitation. My first question is, wait, <laughs> there's not already a minimum mandatory sentence for people who buy children for sex? And doesn't common sense say that it should be getting a rope and stringing them up in the public square? The only proper response to child abuse and pedophilia? Nope. Not in America. Not in the good old U.S. of A. Not in Colorado. The article goes on. This bill was heard in the House State Civic Military and Veterans Affairs Committee, which is also known as the Kill Committee. How lovely. On Thursday, the panel lived up to its nickname, killing the bill on an eight to three party line vote. That party, of course, is the Democrat Party, the Romans One Party. I added that last bit. More than 50 witnesses packed a state capitol hearing room with all but three testifying in favor of the bill. Kelly Dorr, who said her father was sentenced to less than a year in prison for selling her for drugs for 14 years, beginning when she was just a year old, told the committee that even after he was released, he reoffended. Of course he reoffended. Of course. And other female family members came forward to, to report that they too had been trafficked by him. Quote, I can't tell you the number or the hundreds of men that I was forced to sleep with. My earliest memories, I was still in diapers. I was born thinking that this is what all little girls do. 
that this is what we're supposed to do. She said, not one of my buyers was ever prosecuted. It's hard for me to reconcile that we are still not any closer to protecting the most vulnerable children than when I took my trafficker to court at age 15, Dora told the committee. If we don't create policies and laws that are applicable to supporting the victims, then we're never going to do better as a state, she said. House Bill 1092 would go after those who do not see full justice because of the way that our statutes currently exist. Over the last two years, one lawyer said that he had prosecuted 33 cases and about one-third got actual prison time. The rest got probation, although some received jail time, he said. An investigator with the Jeffco Crimes Unit against, or Crimes Against Children Unit said that in 2021 and 2022, his unit arrested 91 predators who targeted children for sexual purposes. Of those arrested, 47 were given a probation sentence, while 20 others received a deferred sentence. They pleaded this serious felony crime down to a misdemeanor, meaning that 73% of child predators received nothing more than a slap on the wrist in Jefferson County, the investigator said. That's right where we are right now. This church is in Jefferson County. Your kids are right over there. And of those 47, 16 have already violated their probation. Of course they did. He added... This clearly demonstrates that a simple probation sentence is not a deterrent for these vile offenders. Yet, eight Democrats, Stephen Woodrow, Andrew Bosnecker, Elizabeth Epps, Jenny Wilford, Kyle Brown, Nikita Ricks, Jennifer Lee Parenti, and Manny Rutinell seemingly disagree, disagree with that. Actually, viewing the abusers as the real victims. That's where we are today. Welcome to America, folks. Now, I believe at a minimum, at a minimum, we as Christians have an obligation as the only ones in this present evil age who have a solution for human depravity to speak up about and preach against such blatant attacks on our children and the most vulnerable among us. I believe at a minimum, we have to speak up about and preach against such blatant injustices and unrighteousness. Same for the demonic LGBTQ agenda and its lust for the drugging and mutilation of these same vulnerable children who are being lied to and repeatedly told that God made a mistake in putting them in the wrong body. Same with the murder of children in the womb. At a minimum, we have to be willing to stand up and say, no, that is wrong. That is a satanic lie. At a minimum, we vote. We're not a political church, but this is a politics. It's justice and injustice. At a minimum, we vote, not blindly for either party, by the way. But on the basis of what is right, we 
sign and circulate petitions. As we did this morning, we try to alert people to the evil intentions of our current elected officials. But I also think, in light of this text, it's more than appropriate to have the mindset of, if it comes to our house, if it comes to our church, if they come for our children, if they keep pushing us, as principled men and women, we will respond. We will be ready to respond defensively and severely. We will be ready to defend our people if the cause is just. And I don't know about you, but in my estimation, fighting for children, born or unborn, is always and definitely a just cause. Amen? Amen. That's right. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, salt is a retardant. It slowed the decay of rotting meat, among other things, before refrigeration. In the same way, he said that those who follow him are to be the salt of this decaying earth. And guess what? It's rotting out there. The members of his church are to be the light to a dark world. Imagine the world without the true church, without some moral compass, Some moral compass who, standing on the authority of the scriptures, say, no, that is ungodly. That is unjust. That is unrighteousness. And and God will wet his sword should you not repent. At a minimum, the church, the true church, ought to be ready and willing to speak out against such evils regardless of who it is that commits them, by the way. Spurgeon said this, and I love this. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood, a church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice and hold up righteousness, is a church that has no right to be. Not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. We are a testimony to a dying world. Not only to speak out against evil, but to point people to the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In fact, that's the only reason that we're still here. That's the only reason. But we as a church cannot and must not be silent as we see such rampant evil taking place. You know, Albert Einstein once said, The world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. Pretty smart guy, that Einstein. Now we know why the world is evil. We know the cure, right? But you got to tell them the bad news before you can tell them the good news. To the hateful eight, to those Democrats, I would... Plead with them to turn from their sin, to repent of your sin, to turn from your wickedness and to turn back to your creator through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bend the knee to Christ as Lord and to live out the rest of your life in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. As evil and demonic as you are, your action and your actions have been, you can be saved today if you would but cry out for the forgiveness of your sin and believe on Christ alone for reconciliation to your creator. So I would implore them to come to Christ. 
The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And unlike your legislation, it would be a just pardoning because the price for your sin was paid for at the cross if you would but truly believe. But I suppose the question that I would have for all of you here this morning is this. Are you willing to stand up and say enough is enough? Are you ready to stand up and preach and vote even and petition and protest and tell them in the name of the Lord they must stop this or face His wrath in hell forever? And then, are you ready when they inevitably say we're going to do it anyhow? Are we ready to stand firm and say not in our house? Not in our church. Are we ready as a church for the potential of a coming fight? Abram was ready. He had 318 trained men, didn't he? He went and got his nephew. A lot of people out sick today. We got a, you know, we we have around 150 or so in our in our three churches. We've got a well over a thousand. There must be 100,000 true believers in this state, right? What about the nation? Why are we ready? Are we going to say enough's enough? Abram was ready. Abram was ready. He went and got his nephew. Which, by the way, was an, another honorable trait of the patriarch. He could have easily said, said to Lot, Man, serves you right, buddy. Right? You remember when you chose the good land and you set your tents next to Sodom? How's that working out for you? Actually, our verse 12 says he's actually now living in Sodom. He could have said, how's it going? How's it going over there? But he didn't say that. He held no grudges. This was his brother's son. He went and got his nephew, didn't he? Didn't he? Abram was no pacifist. Bruce Waltke said, Uh, The same thing. The patriarchs are not pacifists. When Lot is unjustly kidnapped, Abraham Abraham commences in an all-out military campaign to rescue him. James Boyce said, Abram was Lot's keeper. Lot was in trouble. It was Abraham's Abraham's duty before both God and man to rescue him. One commentator writes of this incident, faith makes us independent, but not indifferent. It is enough for you, excuse me, it is enough for it to hear that its brother is taken captive and it will arm instantly to go in pursuit. Another says, the man of faith is a realist, not a passive coward uh, or, one of, or one incapable of leadership. Let me read that again. The man of faith is a realist, not a passive coward or one incapable of leadership. When the crisis comes, he draws new strength from God and pursues to victory. Again, Boyce, may Christians fight? Not only may they, there are times when they must. Moreover, the Christian should fight in defense of another one who is being brutalized, even when he himself is safe. End quote. We're not called to be cowards my brothers and sisters. In fact, we are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We of all people should be standing up for what is right. And at times, this requires conflict. Even Jesus knows that. In fact, this is how he responds, right? You ever read Revelation 19? 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. He has a garment. He has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, he says later, and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. Who is seated on that white horse? Jesus Christ. Well, what happens then? Will the, the pacifist Christ then turn the other cheek and allow them to crucify him all over again and go on living in their wickedness? Is that what happens? Well, I'll let you read it for yourself. You read it for yourself tonight. Jesus Christ is no pacifist, nor should his followers be, especially when confronted with the outright abominations we're witnessing in our country today. We cannot be silent. Well, back to Abram. It wasn't always wartime for the patriarch, even in this case. Uh, as a result of his action, there was a pro time of prolonged peace for the patriarch. Even immediately following his battle with the kings, Moses says in verse 17, then after he came back from striking down Keterliamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. So this king must have crawled out of whatever pit that he had fallen into. Now he comes to greet our hero in the valley, but he wasn't the only one. Another king came, this one from Salem. Hebrews says his name was Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Now, so much, so much could be said this morning uh, about this king's arrival on the scene. First of all, who is this? How did... How did this guy appear all of a sudden? How is he a priest when the Levites haven't even come about yet? Where does he come from? We haven't really heard of any other believers outside of Abraham for these past few chapters. So much can be said on Melchizedek, and Lord willing, will be said during our time next week, as I include verses 18 through 20 in our exposition of chapter 15. But for the sake of time, which I'm running out of quickly, and to conclude the narrative in chapter 14, I want to go back to this meeting. Abram and his men, they come back from the slaughter of the eastern kings, and he sees these two kings coming toward him. Bera, king of Sodom, which actually means sons, son of evil, by the way, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness and peace. They both come to Abram, but with completely different motivations. Melchizedek comes with a blessing, with wine and bread, a banquet, a feast to celebrate this victory, to celebrate Lot's rescue and the people's rescue, to celebrate the defeat of the wicked rulers from the east, a victory that he immediately credited not to Abram, but to who? To God himself. That's right. 
Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, blessed, blessed be Abram of, the, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, Abram's eternal justification will be recorded next week in chapter 15, but already Melchizedek sees Abram as a called, chosen man of God here. Then he says, and blessed be God most high. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. This is not the first command for tithing, by the way. Again, tithing or tribute was something that was even practiced among the heathen. Uh, Tom Constable said people commonly practiced tithing as an act of worship in the ancient Near East at this time. It was also a common tax. This is still true in some modern countries. In some cases, people gave tithes to those whom they regarded as superiors, as a sign of respect. That's what we see here with Melchizedek. More on that next week, though. But again, really quickly, I want you to look back at verse 18 to see where the credit for the victory was given. Blessed be God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So let me ask you, was this a just war? Was this a righteous cause? I would say so. It was the Lord who gave the victory. Just, just as in the case of Gideon, just like in the case of David, who said to Goliath even, this day Yahweh will deliver you up into my hands. Same words. Yahweh delivered Abram. Yahweh delivered David. For the battle is Yahweh's. He will give, it, give you into our hands, David said. The sovereign Lord will give our enemies into our hands. Psalm 144 says, Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. It's been that way in every just war since. And it'll be that way in every just war to come. And as we just read, it will be that way in the end, right? Melchizedek believed this because Melchizedek believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. And Yahweh set and appointed both a time for war and a time for peace. He appointed both. So we have the one king who comes out with a blessing, with a banquet, bread and wine. We have another king who comes out with a demand, an order even. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me, but take the possessions for yourself. The nerve of this guy, right? Wasn't he just running off into the hills looking for cover while his army was being decimated here? This is classic, classic. He comes and says, all right, all right, well done, well done. Now, I shall bestow upon you the spoils. You keep the stuff, Abram, I will keep the people. He was actually trying to negotiate with Abram here, who, who as the victor had a right to everything, both the people and the stuff. Abram could have easily said, yeah, right, beat it, pal, this is all mine. But again, his gaze is still fixed upon the eternal. Even after all the hero heroics, uh, he now sought not his own glory, his own exaltation, but that of the most high God, El Elyon. That is true humility. So he said, verse 22, thank you for your patience, by the way. Uh, I have raised my hand, meaning I have taken a vow, swore an oath, I've given my word to Yahweh God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you would not say, I have made Abram rich. In other, way, in other words, Abram knew this guy's nefarious motives here. This guy was probably saying, I'll give Abram the reward, and 
when he makes it big in the land, I'll always be able to say that I'm the one who gave him his start. I'll always have this on him. In fact, I may even one day call on him for a favor. I could say, you remember all that stuff I gave you when we were there with Melchizedek? Good, now go get your boys because I've gotten myself into another war here. But Abram knew this, and he said, no, no, no. I'm not going to take anything from the likes of you. Nothing. I serve no one but the king of kings. I'm not a sodomite. I'm not a Canaanite. I'm not a Republican, and I'm not a Democrat. I'm a true independent, and I swear allegiance to no man. Verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Aner, Ashkel, Mamre. Let them take their share. Again, it's his to give. They're rightfully Abram's spoils, Abram's people, Abram's good now, goods now. But he says, look, I don't want your stuff. I don't want anything from you, you son of evil. I'll give a tenth to Melchizedek here. You give my guys, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre their share. Feed their men as well. I'm going to go back home to my wife. What an incredible narrative this is, right? What an incredible testimony. What an awesome movie this would be. I would say they should make one, but they'd just blow it. They would ruin it. They'd screw it up. It's perfect how it is. It's perfect. Abram fights a just war, a just battle. He didn't go out looking for it, but when it came to him, he was ready. He did what he had to do to defend his family, to rescue his kin. He even paid tribute to a priest king, all while maintaining his integrity, all while maintaining his loyalty to Yahweh, and above all, keeping his gaze firmly fixed upon eternity. So the question is, how about you? How about you? Well, rejoice, Christian, that this dark, decaying, war-filled world is not your home. We're just passing through. We're just pilgrims. Rejoice that you already have the peace in knowing that something far greater awaits you. Rejoice that while all these patriarchs were looking forward to the promise of ultimate redemption, to a time where all wrongs would be made right, when, when one who would, would come and crush the head of the serpent even, we get to look back and, and praise God that he did, in fact, come that he did come and deliver his people, that he did set the captives free. Rejoice that he freed us from our captivity, from our bondage to sin, our enslavement to our own sin nature, from the penalty of our sin, even from our own depravity through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. And we now get to rejoice and look forward to that day when he comes again to call us home to the home to a place free of politics, free of pedophiles, free of war and mourning and death, rather to a place free, totally free of sin and mourning. And that's worth praising his name together this morning. Amen? Amen. Thank you again for your patience. Uh, Let's have Noel come up and the music team. And we'll close in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning and being instructed and encouraged by your holy and inspired word. We do see this as a privilege, not only because we have many brothers and sisters around the world who aren't able to gather in places like this, but just that we can be your children in the first place. 
None of us deserve it, but we're oh so thankful to be named among them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.